Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Oh my goodness. You're back for more? Thank you for continuing to listen. I have been trying very hard to pace myself. My family likes to tease me that I have a habit of what they call information vomit. I guess this must be true, because I made four episodes just trying to make one. Good news! This means I have enough material for four more episodes. When thinking about Bronze Age Greeks, do not picture them as a united front. Instead, picture them as modern-day Europeans. Europe is comprised of individual countries, each ruled by a unique leader. They are not beholden to other leaders and will work as allies, but Spain and Estonia are definitely two different countries. Also, When I use the word Hellenes, it does not refer to Helen of Troy, but to the name of descendants of Helene, double L, son of Duglion and Pyra, who lived primarily around the Aegean and Ionian seas. That is a story for another time, but for now, let's take a moment of silence for King Aegis and Io of the House Argos, first of her name, the Heifer, goddess of Egypt. Foronis of Forinus and the First Men, Queen of the Hellenes, Khaleesi of the Ionian Sea, Protector of the Afterlife, Lady Regent of the Danaid Dynasty, Hera Cursed, and Mother of Heroes. For this episode, I will be referring to the following ancient authors. Plato, of course a classical Greek intellectual who is our primary source for Atlantis, living roughly around 425 BCE. Diodorus of Sicily. He was an ancient Greek historian. He is known for writing Bibliotheca Historica for a total of 40 books. The purpose for the books was to create a universal historical book, kind of like our modern-day Wikipedia. There are 15 of 40 surviving books which were written around 60 BCE to 30 BCE. The book, named The History, is arranged in three parts. The first book covers mythic history up to the destruction of Troy. The book is arranged geographically, describing regions around the world from Egypt, India, and Arabia to Europe. The second covers the time of the Trojan War to the death of Alexander the Great, and the third covers the period to about 60 BCE. Bibliotheca, meaning library, acknowledges that Diodorus was drawing on the work of many other authors, or more accurately, his book would be translated to the Library of History. Next to Plato, Diodorus would be our second best source on Atlantis. In the previous episode, I went over poor Plato, who gave Poseidon five sets of male twins. While Poseidon's firstborn received the main city and the land of Atlas, the other children also got their lot of land. So Poseidon distributed his portion from the land of Atlas to his ten sons. Here's Plato describing the allotment of property. To Atlas, he made the first king of the island, and he gave him the largest and the best which is his mother's house and the surrounding area. To his twin brother, Gidiaris, was given the extremity of the territory towards the pillars of Heracles, facing the country what is now called Gades. 
the second pair of twins, he called one Ampiers and the other Uemon. The third pair of twins he gave the name of Minesis and Autocaton. The fourth pair of twins he called the elder Elasipus and the younger Mester. The fifth pair he gave the elder the name of Azis and the younger that of Diapapris. So Poseidon divided up the part of his land to his ten sons, and each had complete rule over their portion. The eldest son took for his inheritance the land of his father for an undisclosed amount of generations. The Atlanteans were ruled by the commandments of Poseidon, and it was considered law. Take this passage from Plato. Each of the ten kings, in his own division and in his own city, had absolute control over the citizens, in most cases punishing and slaying whomever he wished. The order of precedence among them and their mutual relations were regulated by the commands of Poseidon, which was considered law and had been handed down. In my first podcast, I discussed how Solon went to Egypt and inscribed on the pillars at the Temple of Neith was the story of Atlantis. I find this interesting because in ancient Greek architecture, I haven't seen inscriptions on their pillars. This doesn't seem to be an ancient Greek architecture custom. I am not an ancient architecture specialist. This is anecdotal evidence at best. If you have any leads to Bronze Age Greek architecture with writing on their pillars, please share it with me. Now, what I have seen are images of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs on their architecture culture. I want you to keep this in mind as I read this next passage from Plato. The laws of Poseidon were inscribed by the first kings on a pillar of Orichalcum, which was situated in the middle of the island at the Temple of Poseidon. I feel like it's safe to say that the Atlanteans, similar to the Egyptians, wrote their history on their temples and walls. I don't have much else to offer on this, so please reach out and share your stories. We are in this together. Now, since I've mentioned Orichalcum, The only other place I've heard this word was in video games. Orichalcum is an unknown red metallic substance that was unique to the Atlanteans. Orichalcum is ancient Greek and it translates to mountain copper. Plato describes Orichalcum in three separate passages as follows. They also had Orichalcum, which is now known only by name, and there were mines of it in many places on the island. Orichalcum was dug out of the earth in many parts of the island, being more precious in those days than anything except gold. The third wall flashed with the red light of Orichalcum. The fact that Plato states that Orichalcum is known only by name means that the metal is no longer in use during his time, and that's around 450 BCE. We do know the mineable metals that were known to the classical era Greeks, and they're no different than our own current knowledge. They were very familiar with metallurgy, and during Plato's time, they were starting to transition to the Iron Age. Fun fact, archaeologists have found Bronze Age armor, and it's precisely 2 millimeters thick everywhere. Scientists are still unable to reproduce it. I think it only adds to the mystery. 
It is worth noting that in 2015, 39 ingots believed to be orichalcum were discovered in a sunken vessel off the coast of Jela, Sicily, which have been tentatively dated at 2600 years old, placing this at 578 BCE, roughly 150 years before Plato and definitely during the time of Solon. They were analyzed and they were found to be an alloy consisting of 75 to 80% copper, 15 to 20% zinc, and smaller percentages of nickel, lead, and iron. The ingots are not red-like in appearance, so either Plato is wrong or these ingots are not orichalcum. As a child, it was the following sentences from Plato that drew me in. Others found the technological advancements or their vast riches a draw, but for me, it's much simpler than that. Here's Plato. There were many different special laws affecting the several kings inscribed about the temples, but the most important law was the following. They were not to take up arms against one another, and they were all to come to the rescue in the event that any of their cities attempted to overthrow the royal house. Continuing on for generations, they were to deliberate in common about war and other matters, giving supremacy to the descendants of Atlas. The king was not to have the power of life and death over any of his kinsmen unless he had the assent of the majority of ten. For many generations, they were obedient to the laws and well affectionate towards their ancestor God. They possessed true and great spirits in every way uniting gentleness with wisdom in the various chances of life and in their intercourse with one another. They despised everything but virtue. They cared little for their present state of life and thought lightly of the possession of gold and other property. Wealth seemed only a burden to them. They were not intoxicated by luxury, nor did wealth deprive them of their self-control. They remained sober and saw clearly that all these goods are increased by virtue and friendship with one another. For with too much regard and respect for the material, the people are lost and lose their friendship with them. With these reflections, and by the continuance in them of a divine nature, the qualities grew and increased among them. Hmm, where do I sign up? I think a big part of me is still lured to Atlantis in hopes of finding it and finding proof that humanity could coexist and not be corrupt. It's also really interesting to me the following sentence from Plato. They were not to take up arms against one another and they were all to come to the rescue in the event that any of their cities attempted to overthrow the royal house. I wonder if Odysseus knew of this most important law of Atlantis and used this knowledge for the oath of Tidarius. For those of you who do not know the story, here it goes, though I'm sure I'm going to butcher it, so please forgive me. Tidarius was a Spartan king. Ancient Sparta had more than one king to rule over the land. Tidarius had two brothers named Hippocoon and Icarius. Fun fact, hippo means horse in ancient Greek. This will come up again. So try to remember that. Tidarius had a wife and her name was Leda and she was overcame with amorous desire for a swan. And eventually she laid two eggs, each producing two children. That's right, four babies and two eggs. It's okay. It's okay. 
because that swan was really Zeus in disguise. So now everything makes sense, right? Right? Anyway. The four babies were Helen, Clymenestra, Castor, and Pollux. Helen was known for her beauty, and when she came of marrying age, suitors from all over came to claim her hand. Of course, Theseus of the Minotaur already kidnapped a very young Helen and may or may not already have had a baby with her. Anyway, back to King Tydarius. The suitors each brought gifts to present in hopes of gaining favor of the king. As custom has it, each guest is granted protection under the law of sanctuary. However, King Tidarius was so afraid of offending any of the suitors because it would be grounds for war. So, Odysseus, who was a suitor for Helen, didn't believe he had a chance to win, so he didn't even bother bringing gifts. But he offered the king a promise to solve his suitor problem. Odysseus really wanted Penelope, and this was King Tidarius's niece from his brother Icarius. Odysseus made a deal with King Tidarius for support in securing Penelope's hand and offered the solution. Each of the suitors were to swear a solemn oath to defend the chosen husband against whomever should quarrel with him. After the suitors had sworn their oaths, Helen was able to choose her own husband. This was unheard of at the time, but Helen of Sparta chose red-headed Menelaus, an exiled prince from Mycenae, as her husband, giving Menelaus a claim to the Spartan throne. Of course, the story later goes on to conclude that when Paris, prince of Troy, came to Sparta, he took off with Helen, either by force or coercion. This is still up for debate. This forced all of the original suitors who took the oath to rise up in a united front and go to war with Troy. The fall of Atlantis seems to be the same repeating story. A vast empire becomes greedy, gets destroyed. A new empire seizes control, becomes greedy, gets destroyed. Here's a passage from Plato. Then the divine portion began to fade away and the Atlanteans became diluted too often and too much with the mortal admixture. Human nature got the upper hand, and being unable to bear their fortune, they behaved unseemingly. Those who had an eye to see grew visibly weaker, for they were losing their fairest of precious gifts. For those who had no eye to see true happiness appeared glorious and blessed at the same time. They were full of greed and unrighteous power. Diodorus of Sicily also writes about the Atlanteans when discussing the Libyan Amazons and can offer some more insight. Upon entering the land of the Atlanteans, they, the Amazons, defeated in a pitched battle the inhabitants of the city of Cern. They made their way inside the walls along with the fleeing enemy, and they got the city into their hands. Desiring to strike terror into the neighboring peoples, they treated the captives savagely. They put to the sword the men from the youth upward. They led into slavery the children and women and destroyed the city. When the terrible fate of the inhabitants of Cern became known amongst their fellow tribesmen, the Atlanteans, struck with terror, surrendered their cities under the terms of capitulation. They announced that they should do whatever should be commanded of them. Queen Marina, bearing herself honorably towards the Atlanteans, both established a friendship with them and founded a city to bear her name in place of the city which had been destroyed. 
In the city, she settled both the captives and any natives who so desired. So, in these passages, Diodorus tells us that CERN was a city within the land of Atlas and was renamed to Marina. Her name reminds me of a ship's harbor, or Marina. The Atlanteans surrendered control over their lands to the Amazons, and then the divinity became diluted. I'd also like to point out another similarity between Diodorus's Amazons and Plato's Atlanteans. Diodorus says, The queen of the Amazons, Marina, collected an army of 30,000 foot soldiers and 3,000 cavalrys. They favored, to an unusual degree, the use of cavalry in their wars. For protective devices, they used the skins of large snakes, since Libya contains animals of such incredible size. For offensive weapons, they used swords, lances, and they also used bows and arrows. With archery, they struck not only when facing the enemy, but also when in flight by shooting backwards at their pursuers with good effect. Then. Plato goes on to describe what the Atlantean kings needed to provide for the Athenian-Egyptian-Atlantean war. Each leader was required to furnish for the war the sixth portion of a war chariot to make up a total of 10,000 chariots, provide two horses and riders for them, making 20,000 horses and 20,000 riders, two horses for chariots without a seat accompanied by a horseman who could fight on foot carrying a small shield one charioteer who stood behind a man-at-arms to guide the two horses, two heavily armed soldiers, two slingers, three stone shooters, three javelin men who were light armored, and four sailors to make up the complement of 1,200 ships. Reminds me a lot of the base that launched a thousand ships, or more accurately, 1,186 ships. Too bad Diodorus says the following, or I would say that the Atlanteans were part of the Trojan War. The race of the Libyan Amazons disappeared entirely many generations before the Trojan War. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. In details of the late myths and personal observations related by those historians, the lake was said to be named after Triton. According to Herodotus, it contained two islands, Fla and Mene. Herodotus assumed that there would be a large river flowing into it, which he called the Triton. I also want to point out the city mentioned here called Mene. Diodorus also describes this city when talking about the Libyan Amazons, with Queen Marina subduing all of the land. Also, take note that Diodorus is using the word island. The Amazons were on an island, which, because it was in the west, it was called Hespera. Their home lay near Ethiopia, and that mountain, called by the Greeks Atlas. Atlas 
which is the highest of those in the vicinity, impinges upon the ocean. By the shore of the ocean, which surrounds the earth, there lay a marsh. In the marsh, named Tritonus, after a certain river Triton, which empties into it, is where the Amazons made their home. The Amazons, being a race superior in valor and eager for war, subdued all of the cities on the island except for the one called Mene, which was considered to be sacred and was inhabited by the Ethiopian Ichthyophagi. 